Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. That's our prayer, isn't it? As we come to the Word of God, that the Lord would speak to us, give us the food of His Word until His church is built and the earth is filled with His glory. So we're turning to His Word now, and we're turning to Mark chapter 12, where we've been working through this gospel. In recent weeks, if you've been with us, you know we've been working through these events and conversations that are leading up to Jesus' death. And we've particularly been watching Jesus escalating conflict with the Jewish authorities. After Jesus condemned those authorities for rejecting the ministry of John the Baptist and his own ministry, and after telling them the parable of the tenants in which he announced the coming punishment on Jerusalem, The Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, these groups have banded together to try to trap Jesus in his words. Last week we saw the first attempted trap as the Pharisees and Herodians asked that politically charged question about paying taxes to Caesar. Of course, that uh, trap failed, and so now uh, group number two moves in with their question to confront Jesus, and that's our focus this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you're open to Mark chapter 12, uh, follow along with me or listen as I read, starting in verse 18 down to verse 27. This is God's Word. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead but of the living. You are quite wrong. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and ask that you would use it in our hearts and lives this morning. Help us to know you more. Draw us to Christ, I pray in his name. Amen. Some of you know the name of Stan Lee. Stan Lee was the co-creator of Marvel Comics. And Stan Lee was once asked about the influences on him as he turned to superhero work. And he wrote this, he said, The Scarlet Pimpernel is the first superhero I had read about and the first legitimate superhero I can think of. Now some of you are probably saying, The Scarlet Pimpernel? I have never heard of the Scarlet Pimpernel. 
Well, he was the main character of a historical fiction novel, first published in 1905. And it follows the exploits of an English nobleman who went through a series of risky and daring adventures in which he sought to rescue French aristocrats during the French Revolution. And he would leave the flower, the Scarlet Pimpernel, as his calling card with each rescue. And the novel, of course, is driven by the hatred of Citizen Chauvelin, the Frenchman who has committed his life to capturing this daring nobleman. And throughout the novel, Chauvelin weaves trap after trap, carefully laying his plans. And yet, no matter how carefully he lays his plans, and no matter how much it seems like he has closed off every conceivable escape, he's outwitted again and again by the boldness and the genius of the Scarlet Pimpernel. And whenever I read Mark chapter 12, I think of that novel. Because the hatred of Jesus' enemies is committed to laying traps for him. And they repeatedly attempt to trap him in his words. And if you are familiar with the context of Jesus' day and you hear these questions, you you know that it seems at first blush that there's no way for Jesus to get out of some of these questions. And yet, repeatedly, Jesus answers with boldness and with truth and with wisdom and humbles his enemies. And this morning we find round two of this conflict focusing on this question from the Sadducees. And again, as with last week, the main point of Jesus' answer is really quite simple. And it's this, the Sadducees are wrong and their question fails because they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. That's the main point for us this morning. And so our our plan is to consider this question of the Sadducees and understand its background a bit better. And then we'll look at the two reasons Jesus gives for the Sadducees' error. But let's start looking at verses 18 to 23 to understand the background of this question. The passage begins and we're introduced to a second group to question Jesus, the Sadducees. And we're told right off the bat that one of their distinguishing marks is that they did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees were a bit of the modernists, the pragmatists of their day, if you will. They uh, had grown up into wealth and political position and power through the operation of the temple and their priestly authority. They were sort of the aristocracy of first century Israel, if you will. And they were in opposition with the Pharisees, both politically and theologically. Politically, the Sadducees thought it was wisest to work with Rome and to benefit uh, off of Rome and their relationship, which the Pharisees disagreed with. Theologically, the Sadducees thought that this world was all that there was, and so they focused on man's decisions as determinative, not God's sovereignty. They did not believe angels or demons even existed, and they believed that this world was the end. There was no future resurrection. Some of you may have heard the little quip that I was taught as a a young man to remember what the Sadducees believed in it. It went like this. The Pharisee, or excuse me, they did not believe in the resurrection, which was why they were sad, you see. And so maybe uh, that'll help you remember how uh, sad they were at not uh, believing the, the resurrection. But Jesus, of course, talked about the resurrection all of the time. And so the Sadducees introduce a question that has probably worked out very well in their debates with the Pharisees. 
And so they decide to employ it in their uh, opposition with Jesus as well. And the question is based on the Old Testament law of leveret marriage. You may remember that God had given Israel an inheritance in the promised land, and that inheritance was given and apportioned by tribe and by clan and by family. And it was important for every family to have an heir to maintain their inheritance in the promised land. And so God had commanded in Deuteronomy 25 that for Israel in the the land, if a man died and had no son, the widow of that man was not to be married off to a stranger, but rather the deceased husband's brother should take her as his wife and her firstborn son would inherit the name and the land and the inheritance of the deceased man. And while this might sound like a, a strange practice today, it was uh, appropriate and right for God's Old Testament people in the land of Israel, uh, given the importance of that inheritance. So the Sadducees suggest a hypothetical scenario in which seven men in a row, seven brothers, marry a woman and die, leaving no offspring. And then after that, the woman herself dies. And they ask, so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Because all seven were married to her. And you can sort of see the smug look on their faces as they say, you know, this problem is not able to be solved. And they they say, you know, is there going to be some sort of resurrection edition of the bachelorette in which uh, all seven brothers compete to see, you know, who will get her as their resurrection wife? Or or is one woman going to have seven husbands? And and how is that going to work out? And I think it's worth pointing out, this is a a sort of bizarre scenario. It almost certainly had never happened, but it was asked to make a point. And the point that the Sadducees are trying to make is that common sense alone makes it obvious that the idea that we're all resurrected to a future bodily life together after this world is totally ridiculous because it brings up all sorts of unresolvable problems. And their goal is to make Jesus look silly as he stumbles and mumbles and bumbles about uh, in the face of these unresolvable problems. But once again, these Sadducees have underestimated Jesus. And Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He looks at them and says, you are wrong. I would probably, if it was me, say something like, well, you know, that's a really good question. Let's think about that for a second. Not Jesus. Jesus says, you are wrong, and you are wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That is a direct statement, but of course, you don't prove your point just by asserting it. So Jesus goes on to explain how the Sadducees have failed to understand the Scriptures and the power of God. And he starts with the power of God in verse 25. So we'll look there first as well. Now, don't miss how Jesus begins verse 25. He says, for when they rise from the dead. Jesus Jesus doesn't argue for a hypothetical resurrection from the dead. He doesn't talk about principles in, in, in general. He declares the reality of a future resurrection of the dead. When they rise from the dead is a declarative statement of certainty that grounds our hope in our future resurrection. 
Then Jesus introduces the problem with the Pharisees' argument, and that is their assumption that resurrection life will just be a future continuation of this life. Well, the the Sadducees assume that resurrection will just be living together on earth in all the ways we do now, only without death. But that assumption is wrong. A change will happen between this life and eternal life. Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. To put it another way, the power of God will not only raise his people from the dead, the same power of God will also transform us into creatures capable of living an immortal life with him in glory. When Jesus says we'll be like the angels in heaven, of course, he does not mean we're going to be like creatures with wings flying around with harps and some sort of cartoon version of angels. No, what he means is that we will be like the angels because our bodies will no longer be of dust, but will be immortal and capable of living forever in glory with God like the angels. And in addition, we will be like the angels in our relationships because our relationships will no longer be focused on marriage and raising children and working the ground and the tasks of this earth and this life. No, we will be focused on worship and fellowship and serving God like the angels. So the nature of our bodies and the task we will given, what we will be taken up and doing together, will be like the angels, not like this world. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talks about the resurrection because the the Corinthians came to, to Paul with a similar question. They said, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You see, it's the same question about resurrection bodies. And Paul says, on the last day, we will all be changed from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal. Death will be swallowed up in victory thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we have natural bodies made from dust that are weak. And this isn't really a point we need proven for us, is it? We all know our knees give out and our minds start forgetting and our our bodies fade and wear down. And all we have to do is just ask ourselves, do we really think this body is going to last forever? Of course not. But in the resurrection, God is going to give us real, physical, yet spiritual bodies, Paul says. Bodies that are imperishable, raised in power and glory. Our bodies then will be like Jesus' body when he was raised from the dead. Recognizable and still Jesus, and yet different, not bound by the limits of this world. I like how one commentator put it when he said, The glorious realities of the life to come can no more be compared to the present routines of this life than the life of a butterfly can be understood by watching a caterpillar. A change will come about thanks to the power of God. And all of this means, of course, that the Sadducees had vastly underestimated the power and the plan of God and what he would do in his people to raise us into eternal beings with him. They were mocking a mere shadow of the true resurrection that will come when Christ returns.
So they had completely failed to understand the power of God. Now, before we move on, I want to just comment briefly on this idea that when we are raised, we will not be married or given in marriage. And Jesus' comments in response to the Sadducees' question seems to imply in some way that our marriages in this life do not continue in the resurrection, and especially for many who have the, the joy of a dear marriage for many decades in this life, we, we wonder, what, what exactly does this mean? What will my relationship with my spouse be like in heaven? And while we should avoid speculation, I think Scripture gives us two things that we can say. First, Scripture affirms that we continue to be ourselves in the resurrection. We don't cease to be the person that God has created us to be. And in addition, Scripture seems to apply an awareness of and relationship with those that we knew in this life. After, we're, after all, Jesus clearly knew and interacted with his disciples as his friends in his resurrected body. And in addition, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul instructs the Thessalonians not to grieve without hope, knowing that they would be with the Lord together with those that they knew and loved who had passed away when Christ returned. So I expect that in the resurrection we will continue to be ourselves and we will continue to know each other and have relationship in heaven. However, Jesus implies that the marriage relationship does not continue in heaven. I remember sitting around the uh, lunch table with one of my seminary professors as a, a group of seminary students. He was around 70 at the time after many decades of marriage. And one of my fellow students brought up this passage and, and said, well, what does this mean about our marriages in heaven? And this dear man got a, a, a smile on his face. And he said, I think it means that marriage is God's most blessed provision for our journey here not an eternal status to be maintained there. Well, that's a beautiful statement, isn't it? Marriage is God's good, wonderful gift for support and care in this life, for multiplying to fill the earth as God has instructed to be an arrow pointing us toward the intimacy we will know with our Lord in, in heaven. But when we arrive in heaven, marriage will have completed its earthly mission. And in heaven, we will come to our chief purpose in joy. And with that, we will no longer have earthly bodies charged with earthly tasks. But with the angels, we will enjoy worship and fellowship together with God and Christ, glorifying him forever. And so marriage will be caught up and fulfilled in our fellowship together and our intimacy with our Savior. And so all of this will be accomplished by the power of God and his people. And that, Jesus said, was the first thing the Sadducees failed to understand when they asked this question. But then if we move on to verses 26 to 28, Jesus turned to God's word and showed that the Sadducees also did not understand the scriptures. And Jesus turned to the book of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as it turns out, these were the only five books of the Old Testament that the Sadducees accepted as authoritative. And so uh, Jesus does not affirm that they're right, but he turns to the five books they accepted to show that the Sadducees were wrong even on their own terms. 
He quotes God's words to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3.6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus concludes, you see, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. After all, God did not come to Moses and say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is not the language of people who have ceased to exist in the past. No, it is the language of those who continue to exist, representing God's ongoing relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of these men. But I think Jesus is pointing to something even more profound than just the verb tenses here. When God announces that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is reminding Moses of the covenant promises that he had made to these men. But just think about those covenant promises. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now just ask yourself for a second. When Abraham died, how many of those promises had been fulfilled? None of them. Not even close. Not at all. And it's sure hard to mark the abounding faithfulness and steadfast love of a God if he made such great promises to Abraham and then Abraham ceased to exist forever and received absolutely none of them. But actually, if we turn to Genesis 17, 7, we find that God said to Abraham, I am making an everlasting covenant with you and with your offspring after you. In other words, these men are going to see the fulfillment of these promises in the resurrection life to come, which is why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 13 to 16 says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and showing that they desired a better and heavenly home. Because these men still have a living hope of resurrection where they will see the eternal promises of God fulfilled for them. And so, Jesus affirms, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And such resurrection life is assumed by the very nature of God's everlasting and covenant promises and by the way that God identifies himself with those promises in these men. And that, Jesus said, is taught by the words of Scripture if the Sadducees had only known it and understood it. And so with that, Jesus decimates trap number two. Now, if Jesus' answer to the question last week was a brilliant practical answer on how to honor God without undermining the state, Jesus' answer to the Sadducees is a theological masterpiece, and it takes some careful thinking, but he opens up for us the glories of God's promises and the hope of every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do before we conclude this morning is take just a minute to ask how are these words significant for us? Most, probably all of us are not Sadducees this morning, but Jesus' words are still significant for two reasons. First, Jesus' words are significant because they challenge us about the importance of knowing God's word. 
Jesus says that the cause, the root cause of the Sadducees' error is that they did not know the scriptures. You see, the, the Bible is not just a, good, a, a book of good ideas. The Bible is not just a, a book of encouraging daily verses. It, it has that. It is that. It's not less than that, but it is much more than that. The Bible is nothing less than the words of our God to us to tell us about him and about his promises that we might know him and that we might know what is true. The scriptures introduce us to the power of God who can overcome our sin and can overcome death through Jesus Christ if we look to him in faith. The scriptures introduce us to the power of God who can change us in the twinkling of an eye from perishable to imperishable to bring us into men and women of resurrection glory because of our relationship with Christ. The scriptures introduce us to our sin and foolishness in our lives and to the, to the error of, of our minds that we might know what is true. And the scriptures offer us the joy of knowing Christ and of being comforted by his promises. All of that is contained in the scriptures. But if we're going to know those things, we can't just have Google handled handy to ask what does the Bible say about fill in the blank if we don't know the answer. Now we have to know God's word. We have to dig into it, to read it, to pray for understanding, to talk with one another about it that we might know God and his truth. Now students and adults, at some point you're going to be confronted with questions about God and about life and about the Bible that you don't know the answer to. Questions that might seem to contradict things that you thought you knew or had been told. Just this week, a a member of our church sent me some YouTube links of a young man who grew up in a a missionary family, but now rejects Christianity and spends his time and dedicates his YouTube channel to critiquing the Bible as unhistorical and full of contradictions and unable to be trusted. In his view, this morning, we are all here drinking the Kool-Aid and washing it down with a hymn on a Sunday morning, as he put it in his video. He's a smart guy. His points are not utter ridiculousness in one sense. They are in others. But as I watched, I was struck by the same issue we find in our text this morning. And it's this. He's happy to nitpick this detail or this verse, but he doesn't know the scriptures. And he's not putting work into trying to understand them. He's only looking for ways to attack them. And in doing so, he has not only failed to understand the scriptures, he's completely missed the power of God. And we too, any one of us here this morning, will be most susceptible to arguments like those that he has in his videos if we do not know the scriptures. And so the first challenge for us this morning is from Jesus' words to dig into his word to know his word, to love his word, that we might know him and his truth. But secondly, Jesus' words are significant because they remind us of our resurrection hope. At the root of the Sadducees' error was assuming that religion was just about how we live this life now. It's not about the power of God to conquer sin and death and eternal hope to come. And the reality is the idea that religion is mostly about helping us in this life now is very alive and well today. 
In the 20th century, our culture was hypnotized by the newfound ability of science to explain everything. The Big Bang described the start of everything. Evolution described the development of everything. Scientists began to explain how our body works and how the world works and began to think the idea that God sits in heaven, invisible to the eye, and holds everything together in the palm of his hand and guides things according to the power of his will seemed out of accord with this exploding knowledge that we had in the 20th century. And we had, we had similar quips about the folly of believing in the resurrection from the dead. Maybe you've heard some of them before. They, they went things like, well, well what's going to happen to the soldier who was blown up by a grenade? Or what do you think about the man who was eaten and digested by a tiger? How's his body going to be raised in the resurrection? And you see, it's the same thing. The idea that common sense questions could show that Christianity and its hope is ridiculous. But the result was religion shifted to a focus on this life. It's just about making us good and kind and caring about social welfare. And many of the same questions remain today. In the 21st century, though, now there's, there's a slightly new variation on the same theme. And it goes like this. Religion is a tool to help me find peace and happiness in life. Even atheists like John Gray argue that religion is not about what is true or false, but what helps me in this life. And if Christianity helps me and offers me some comfort and grief and a reason to get up in the morning and a motivation to do good, then great use it. But of course, religion isn't about a supernatural God who breaks into this world to judge mankind and to accomplish his purposes, we're told. So these ideas are alive and well. But Jesus declares that these perspectives are quite wrong. For the Bible tells us that God does hold all things in the palm of his hand and that God has acted, is acting, and will act again in history to bring about his purposes and to bring the new heavens and the new earth by the power of his right arm and that he will show up to judge what we have done before the throne of his son whom he raised from the dead. And this is not just an academic debate. It impacts every day of our lives. Of course, the irony is that it is precisely when we realize that religion is not just about this life and that God has, in fact, sent Christ into the world to redeem us from sin. And it is only when we put our trust in Christ alone as our Savior that the power of God through His Spirit actually gives us new lives of obedience to enable us to do what is right and to honor Him and to live in ways that bring glory to God. Thinking that religion is just about this life will not make us good and righteous people. It is knowing God as he is in the power of the gospel that actually accomplishes those things. And of course, it is only the actual truth of the gospel has come from God himself that can bring real comfort in the face of suffering and a real sense of purpose and understanding of what life is all about. And this reminds us, of course, that we have real hope. The fact that God has broken in and offers us hope of life beyond the now is what gives us genuine hope. Because it reminds us that this life is not just about jobs and blogs and the next cool shoes and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever takes up the minutes and hours of your lives. 
No, we were made for fellowship with God. Christianity is not just about sayings and mantras and principles. No, as author John Stott wrote, Christianity is a religion of resurrections. The resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week in the first century in Palestine for our salvation. The resurrection of sinners like you and me who are rescued from the consequences of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ and so are united to Him that we might become new creations by the power of His Spirit. And then the resurrection of the body as we look to the future hope that we have when God will bring every tear to end and to naught and bring us into resurrection glory with Him forever. You see, in the face of these truths, we actually find what we need. As a result, in the face of temptation, we know that saying no to sin and yes to God comes with eternal reward. In the face of materialism's sparkle, we know that this world's goods will be destroyed by moth and rust, but treasures in heaven last forever. In the face of our sufferings now, we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us in Christ. And in the face of death, we know that God has promised us resurrection so that after we have fought the good fight and finished the race, we will forever be with the Lord. That's the truth that our passage this morning explains. And that changes our lives here and now. This is the hope Jesus calls us to by affirming resurrection, announced in Scripture, accomplished by the power of God for all who trust in Him. And I hope that it is what each of us is resting on this morning. Let's pray. Father, how I thank You for Your Word. How I thank You for Jesus' words which draw us to Scripture and remind us of the power of God And remind us that whatever we're facing in this life is not ultimate. But also reminds us that our hope for the future depends upon our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so I pray that that would be our hope and trust this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.